Please join me now as I read the passage on which today's teaching is based. It comes from Esther chapter 6, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 12. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And this is God's word. The book of Esther is about a Jewish woman that rises to the position of queen over the Persian Empire, the most powerful empire, the most powerful nation in the world today. And although Esther was originally handpicked to be part of the king's harem, and so she gave into that city's objectification of beauty and sexuality by changing the way she eats, changing the way she dresses, and changing the way she looks. And she ends up sleeping with a man mainly because of his power, mainly because of his wealth, and she marries him. And through this series of events, however, Esther is placed in a position to mediate for her own people, God's people. Esther places her life at risk because if she doesn't, at the end of the year, everyone will be wiped out. And it's said that as desperate as the situation was, as desperate as the times were, the book of Esther is the only book where God is not mentioned anywhere. And yet, behind the scenes, God is clearly present. He's clearly working. And as a result, Esther is a great book. It's a great book that shows us what it means to be a Christian who has wealth and power and influence. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Now, chapter 6 is a pivotal chapter. It's pivotal to the narrative. So we're going to look at the text. I'm going to give you a background of the text and then we're just going to draw some truths from the text. A background and some truths. Very simple here. At the beginning of chapter 6, 
we see Haman coming to see the king. Why? Because in verse 4, Haman is not satisfied with just killing Mordecai. He's not just satisfied with just killing the Jews. He wants to make it a whole public spectacle. And so he builds this gallows, this high gallows in a public square. And he approaches Xerxes to get his approval to hang Mordecai on those gallows. Mordecai, you know, you don't just hang a person in those days, in those ancient times. You would impale them. He would be pierced. He would bleed. He would suffocate to to death, essentially. And he would suffer. It would be a slow death. Haman, Haman wanted to humiliate Mordecai. Mordecai would be humiliated on that day. The Jews would be slaughtered. That was the plan. But in verses 1 to 3, you see the king, and he's sleepless. And so he calls for a book to be read to him because it's going to induce sleep. It will help him to rest, ease his mind. And so he asks specifically for the chronicles, which is where you see the happenings of the king's court on a given day. It's on record. Now here's the thing. The author makes this passage the turning point of the narrative. With all the plotting that's going on, with all the scheming that's going on, with all the prayer that's going on, the author doesn't only mention, he not only does not mention God throughout the book, the author doesn't use the plotting, he doesn't use the scheming, he doesn't use the prayer as a turning point. The technical literary turning point is not driven by the the ironies in a narrative or the plot pivots. How do you know that? It's very important. The book of Esther contains chiasms throughout the book. And uh, I'm going to give you basically a, a very brief, simplified lesson on chiasms. What is a chiasm? A chiasm in a narrative exists when themes and textual elements, when phrases are arranged in a mirror-like form that cascades. What do I mean by that? I'm going to give you an example. Phrase A is followed by phrase B, Right? It cascades into phrase B, which is then followed and cascades into phrase B prime and then A prime. You got A, followed by B, followed by B prime, followed by A. And it's a mirror image, essentially. And that literal arrangement brings insight into central themes that are woven into the narrative. That's what you're going to see. For instance... In the book of Esther, it begins with a pair of feasts in chapter 1. There are, pair, there are two feasts in chapter 1, and then it ends with a pair of feasts in chapter 9. Then you have in chapter 2, right, the cascading, right, this is B prime. You have chapter 2, you have, a, you have Esther's coronation banquet and feast. That mirrors Mordecai's promotion and a celebratory feast in chapter 8. You see that cascade? You think that's just a coincidence? Well, we're going to keep going. Now you get to the center of the book, chapters 5 through 7. Esther holds a pair of feasts right there between chapters 5 and 7. A pair of feasts for the king and Haman. Haman's downfall begins with those two banquets that are held between chapters 5 and 7. So chapter 6 becomes a pivotal chapter. It's the central part. The literary turning point of the entire book is chapter 6. The feast in chapter 7 is the climax of the book. But the literary pivotal point is in chapter 6, and it begins with a dream, the king's dream. Why is that so important? Look how hard Haman is working. 
Look how hard he's scheming, this elaborate plot and scheming and political maneuvering. Look at Mordecai and Esther. They're planning and, and they're praying. Look at the Jews, they're praying. And yet everything begins to unravel, unravel at this literary pivotal turn with Xerxes and his dream. What's the author saying? He's saying you can work really hard, you can plan really well, you can read every book of strategy, you can learn at the best schools, you can negotiate and practice the art of negotiation really well, you can save up really, really well, you can plan your life out to the T and try to accomplish everything to build to your goals. But under the surface of all your decisions, under the surface of all your actions, is a hidden power, the presence of God. A presence of God that you yourself may not uh, acknowledge, you yourself may not be looking for, but His presence and His will cannot be thwarted. The author separates this pivotal literary turning point from the text from the dramatic climax to teach us that not even the most powerful person in the world to date, Xerxes himself, can stop God's will. Not even the most evil person uh, in the empire, in that, in that narrative, Haman, as powerful as he is, not even he can stop God's will. And look, there are no miracles, there are no visions, there are no miraculous signs. It's just ordinary suffering through current events. That's all you see. The major reversal of the story is not the result of a human act, but the powerful work of God in the background. It's totally out of our control. In fact, it begins with a dream. We don't even know what the dream is. There's nothing miraculous about it. There's no interpretation of the dream. There's no visions. It's just a dream that woke up the king and he's sleepless. That's what we see. All you see is, is that uh, the powerful work of God in the background, in the silence, not even acknowledged intentionally by the author, but revealed through his word, revealed through the promises of God throughout history, and not disrupted by circumstances, not, not disrupted by, by any human power, no matter how deep, deep, dark the, the situation is, no matter how bleak the situation is. Why is God not answering my prayers, we often say? It's because you either don't know what God wants for you, or you're not willing to accept what God wants for you, or you don't see what God sees, that everything has to happen. Everything must happen as it does for God's will to be accomplished. Yes, the situation looks bleak. Yes, the situation looks hard. But God is in the situation working for your good. God is in the situation working for his glory. God is doing 10,000 things right now for his glory, for his promises, for his will, and for your good. Mordecai, he saved the king in chapter 2. But look at the mourning and the wailing and the grieving and the praying and the pacing and the conversations and the dialogue. Days are going by. The king, is, the king doesn't remember what's going on until chapter 6. Why did he forget? We complain about that so much. Why? It's so easy to complain. Well, why didn't he figure this out? Now we look back at the end of the story and we say, if the king had not forgotten, Mordecai dies. You see that? If the king does not forget, everyone else dies. You see that? What does that teach us? God uses every thought, every prayer, 
God uses every plan, every decision, every encounter, every conversation, every relationship, every mistake, every evil, every piece of suffering. It all matters in accordance with God's wisdom and his faithfulness. You've got to trust God. Don't just trust in Jesus. You've got to trust Jesus. Don't just trust uh, in God. Trust God. Trust his word. Trust him. We don't pray to change God's mind. We pray because we trust God and that he is working through the godliness and through the evil, through the godliness and through the suffering for his glory and for our good. And so in verse 3, the king suddenly remembers that Mordecai saved his life from an assassination attempt and he was never rewarded. And so in verses 4 and 5, at that moment, Haman just happens to be walking in. He happens to come in to get the approval to hang Mordecai. The king remembers Mordecai. And in that moment, Haman comes in and and, and wants to hang Mordecai. And when the king asks him in verse 6, what should be done for a man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman, he's the second man in charge of the entire empire. He's a second in power to the king himself. You know what that means? He can never get promoted. He has reached his career peak. He, will not, he can't get promoted again. He has reached the top already. But what does he do? He's still so desperate for power. He's still so lustful for approval and honor. And he's obsessed with power. It's twisted in a way that even the slightest of slights from a lower person just completely destroys him. Thinking that the king is referencing him, what should be done for the, for the man whom the king delights to honor? Thinking that the king is referencing him, he comes up with a proposal. And verses 7 to 9, he says what? Let, let that person wear the king's robe. Let, let that person ride on the king's horse. Let one of the most noble princes, one of the greatest people in the empire, take the position of a slave or a servant and let him lead the horse through the streets on which this man is placed. And like a messenger, let the people know this is what happens to, the king, to whom the king delights, delights and honors. This will show the delight of the king. What is he saying? In ancient times, when a king gives you his robe, he's saying, I want you to be in my place. I want you to be where I am. I delight in you. I honor you. I love you. My life is your life. My status is your status. You, what I have, you have. He's saying you and I are the same. To wear the king's robe and to ride on his horse, it's a public thing. You're being treated like a king in public. You're being honored like a king. What irony. It's, it's so, Petty Haman, he wants to lift Mordecai up on the gallows to his death. But the king wants to lift Mordecai up to his glory. Haman is thinking, if the people saw, if the people see that I am loved by the king, then I will know I have worth. The reason why I want the power, the reason why I want uh, the, the title, the reason why I want, I'm in this position, the reason why I work so hard, and the reason why I've got to get rid of these people who, who, who slight me, is because I want the honor and the approval of the king. We all want that. We all need to be convinced that we have worth. It's why we're so desperate for intimacy. It's why we're so desperate even to get married with somebody, to to feel a sense of honor and worth and intimacy. It's why we slave over our jobs and slave over to to get promotions. But what happens? The king says, do that for Mordecai. And since you are that greatest nobleman, you are the noblest prince we've got, You can act as that servant. You can act as that slave leading the horse along, declaring to people that this is what happens for whom the king delights. 
for whom the king honors. This is just the beginning of a series of pivotal reversals of fortune, a series of pivotal ironies and reversals. Because look, Mordecai, he was about to be held high in disgrace. Now he's being, he's being held high in honor. And Haman, who, who thought that he was about to be held high in honor, is now about to parade through the city in disgrace. He's like a slave. He's like a servant. And so he returns, verses 12 and on, he returns home grieving. And uh, his wife predicts his ruin. And, and he can't move forward with his plan because now this person that he hates is going to be held high. He knows he's lost. There is a total reversal to bestow honor on the person that he hates the most. There's some more chiasms. In chapter 4, Mordecai is wearing sackcloth. What happens? There's a turn. Chapter 8, he's wearing royal robes. In chapter 4, Mordecai is going through the city and he's crying and he's mourning. In chapter 6, he's walking through the city and he's now held in honor. In chapter 4, he's mourning and he's weeping. In chapter 6, Haman is grieving. In chapter 5, Haman's wife advises, this is how you get Mordecai. This is how you disgrace him. This is how he dies. In chapter 6, verse 13, now she predicts his ruin. Lots of chiasms. Lots of insights, lots of themes running through. What do you learn? There's some pivotal truths about the gospel that we learn here in this text. First, the gospel is upside down. The gospel is upside down. In other words, if you want to get glorified, if you really want to go up, you need to bow. You need to surrender. You need to submit. You need to listen. You need to obey. You need to pray. Look at Haman. His wealth was not enough. Being second in command in the, in the greatest empire to date was not enough. He's completely taken by a lust for honor. I need the king to delight in me, and I will get, go at all costs for the king to delight in me. And so he's going to step over everybody and get rid of anybody that, that is dishonoring so that only he has left. You know how lonely that is? You know how isolating that is? I mean, you think you're isolated now. That is isolation. That is a soulful, spiritual darkness that leads to isolation. You see that? The gospel is upside down. How? Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ had the glory. Philippians 2 says, Though he is in very nature God... He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing and lowered himself. He came down. Advent, Christmas, is what? It's about the king, the high king who came down. It's about the high king who lowered himself and became obedient to death even the cross. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. The gospel is upside down. That means the quickest way to go down, if you want to go down, you've got to fight your way up. You're going to fight and claw, step over people, and it's going to leave you angry and anxious and sad, in despair. Look at Haman grieving. Look at his wife predicting ruin. That's going down. But the way up, if you want to go up, you've got to go down. What does that mean? 
If you want to see real power, you got to give it away. If you want to see real wealth, real richness, you got to live sacrificially. If you want to experience incredible glory, then you need to honor others and honor the Lord. The gospel is upside down. Secondly, the gospel is inside out. Mordecai is honored. Haman becomes the slave, becomes a servant, like a servant. He, he becomes a fool, a laughingstock, a disgrace. What does that teach us? Pride leads to evil, evil thoughts, evil plans, evil actions. Then it leads to humiliation, disgrace, and eventually makes you out like a fool. With pride, there is a deep self-absorption. Everything is about you. You're the only one that's right. You're the only one that's good. And everybody else is a tool. Pride makes everyone a tool until eventually you become the tool and then you become a fool. You get that? Haman in chapter 3, what is he doing? He's scheming and he's plotting evil. Why? Because Mordecai made him feel like a fool. He slighted him and it made him angry. It destroyed him. This, the second person to the king. And yet this lower person slights him, disrespects him, and that just absolutely destroys him. Haman is evil on the outside. Why? Because there's a pride in the inside. There's an ego on the inside. There's an evil on the outside because there's a pride on the outside. There's a superiority on the outside because there's an inferiority on the inside. That's the fallen condition. That's us. Driven by our sin. See, the king's robe is more than a garment. It covers over you. It protects you from exposure. It gives you instant status. It helps to cover over insecurity. That's why we all want someone who is like a king that will say, I delight in you. That's why we need their approval. Why? That's why we need the approval of other people. That's why we're working so hard for status. It's why we work so hard for our wealth. When we build these things, it covers over us. It protects us. Look at Haman. The story of Haman, it's a warning for us. In chapter 3, Haman is honored, but by chapter 6, he's a fool. We see his demise. What's the lesson? If you don't address your pride today... One day, pride will have you, pride will control you, pride will own you, pride will address you, and then will leave you hanging, literally. Why does pride own you? Because pride has this blinding effect on the soul in a way that, that you can't address the things in your life that are really killing you. Everybody else sees it but you. That's why you're the fool. Everybody else sees it. Everybody has been trying to tell you, but you don't see it. And so pride says, I'm right. I, I can justify it. I'm good. And he's no good. She's no good. When everybody else knows that you have the problem, when everybody else knows you may be the problem, a humble person recognizes a great need for other people in their lives. So humble people surround themselves uh, uh, with, with people who are wise, who have eyes into their soul, who have a warrant for their arrest. The gospel is inside out. 
because you have ultimate security, because you have ultimate worth, because you are loved by the ultimate king, God himself, who adores you like his child, because you have that worth, because you have the robe of the ultimate king, dressed in, righteous, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, because you're covered, Christ's righteousness, by his blood covering us and over our sins, there's no more insecurity, there's no more inferiority, there's no need to act superior. There's no need to be condescending. There's no need to, be a- to act like a judge because we're, it's our fallen condition. We all have it. When you recognize that, there is a lightness about you and your soul that on the outside makes you a very winsome person, a loving person, a compassionate person, a gracious person. How do you get there? The gospel is upside down. The gospel is inside out. The gospel is forward back. Jesus Christ says the what? Jesus Christ says, you want to find yourself? You want to move forward? Well, then you got to deny yourself. You got to lose yourself. You got to leave it behind. All you, we all need somebody like a king who loves us the way this king, Xerxes, delighted in Mordecai. We all want that. We all need that. The problem is we're looking for it in the wrong kings. We're looking for it in our spouses. We're looking for it in our children. We're looking for it in our relationships. We're looking for it in our network. We're looking for it among our coworkers because we want their respect. We're looking for it with our bosses, our superiors. But when Jesus Christ, the high king, came down, he began in a manger. He didn't begin in a throne. He began in a manger. You can't get lower than a manger. How does a prideful servant become like a king? A great preacher said, well, then you have to behold the ultimate king who became like a servant. In John chapter 12, Jesus Christ, the true king, enters into Jerusalem. But how does he enter in? Is he wearing a king's robe? No. Is he riding on a king's horse? No. Does he come to sit on the throne? No. He rides in on a donkey's colt that was borrowed. He rides in on a colt, a donkey that was borrowed. This king acts like a servant for you. And that's a picture. It was just a picture of what he's about to do on the cross days later. Jesus Christ is the ultimate. The cross is the ultimate reversal narrative. Because on the cross, what do you see? The greatest sorrow, the death of the king leading to the greatest reversal and the greatest joy the salvation of his people. On the cross, you see the greatest king becoming the ultimate servant, obedient to the point of death. And God, even though he was silent, even though he turns his face away from his son, God is still working through the death and through the blood and through the sacrifice to bring about the ultimate reversal So when Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying, what we're seeing is the most humble, most obedient, righteous man that ever walked the earth. The kingliest person that ever walked the earth hung on the gallows, pierced, bleeding, suffocated, and died so that we would be lifted up by God in honor. You see that? What will take away, what will melt away 
self-absorption because trying hard to be humble will not make you a humble person you have to be transformed because trying hard to see something that you don't see your 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 soulful eyes left to themselves you will not work but to see that when jesus christ went to the cross he was stripped naked and when he cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me he's saying i've lost the king's robe i'm naked i have no covering i have no shield i have no mediator i'm completely vulnerable completely insecure i've lost the father's delight i've lost his honor and i've been completely forsaken why why mordecai was honored through reversals we are honored through the ultimate reversal Mordecai was honored only because Haman reluctantly placed himself in the, in the position of a servant and places Mordecai in the position of a king. But Jesus Christ takes our place and places us in a place of honor, in a position of honor, and he did it for the joy. He did it with gladness. There's the true king. Celebrating your honor on the cross as he bled and died. Do you know that Isaiah chapter 53 says, which is a, which is a prophetic psalm of what Jesus was going through and endures on the cross. It says at the end of that, in that passage in Isaiah 53 that he was satisfied. He was glad to see this happening. That means that on the cross, he had a vision of us being held in honor by God, reconciled to God. You see that? There is true kingliness. As he's bleeding and dying, there is the gospel being practiced upside down. That to gain power is to give it away. To gain honor is to lose it to give it away, to afford it to others, to empower others. Look at the kingly beauty of Jesus Christ. But then there's also your validation and your sense of worth. Your, it becomes our robe. It becomes our delight, the king delighting in us. We see that whenever we look to the cross, we see the king delighting in us, honoring us because of what he did to Jesus, because of what Jesus endured. That's what we all need, the validation and the worth and the love and the delight of the king. Jesus Christ is a king that we can all run to because he reverses places with us, in a sense. At infinite cost himself, he was stripped naked so that we can be clothed in his righteousness. In him, we are clothed in his righteousness. We are covered by his blood, and that becomes our source of security and worth. How do you move forward? You go back to the cross. Every time you make a big mistake, commit a huge failure, go back to the cross. Place your trust in Christ and what he has done, who he is. He's the king. And, he, and what did he do? Look at the work that he, he accomplished for us. And then you can move forward because his robe is your robe. His robe is your robe. Your failures placed on the cross. His righteousness placed on you. And one day then, we become kings forever. We are held in glory as God's sons and as a royal priesthood. We're kings forever. Christmas is about celebrating the high king who has come down, who took our place and everything we deserved. 
so that we can have everything he deserved. Will that make you then more sacrificial, more loving, more compassionate? Not just, it's a season of giving, not just for the season, but for all time. That brings glory and honor to God as, he work, as he's working in our isolation and brokenness and failures and suffering. Pray with me.